brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, achy joints, weight gain. Maybe you're thinking they're all just part of getting older, or that's what your doctor tells you. But Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all be connected. Hormonal changes that happen during perimenopause and menopause are at the root of dozens of symptoms women experience, not just hot flashes. Midi specializes in compassionate care for women in menopause. Their solutions are safe, effective, and FDA approved. Plus, they're covered by insurance. A convenient telehealth visit with a MIDI clinician can be your first step to getting personalized care. They'll tailor a treatment plan for your symptoms and health history so you can get back to feeling great. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the All Metal Mode podcast with your host, Mike Hare and Mr. Dorian Cook. Uh, if you're tuning in, uh, if, you're, if you haven't been tuning in, tonight is part three of Jesse James, which, uh, boy, we've had a lot of really good feedback on. Um, it's, it's really been amazing. A lot of people have reached out to say what, what good shows what good shows they've been that Dorian's put on. So we're going to wrap it up tonight with part three. Before we get into it, if you're looking for the best digging tools for metal detecting and gardening, go to PredatorTools.com. They build the highest quality and strongest digging. I lost my place. Jeez. <laughs> Uh, made, made from the finest American made steel, steel built right here in the United States. Each tool is heat treated and tempered one at a time for maximum strength. They are second to none. There are many to choose from and each has a five-year warranty. So if you need a digging tool, if you need digging tools that last and make the job of digging easier, look no farther than predatortools.com or call Pam at 856 455 Three seven nine zero, and tell them that uh, all metal mode sent you. Absolutely, Garrett's big announcement on Friday. I don't know if you guys have seen this. I'm guessing most of you have. At 10 a.m., I believe that'll be Central Time, but I'm not positive. It sounds like we're going to get a look at the new uh, Apex. So tune in, and most likely Tuesday. Um. We will be talking about the Apex, about what was discussed, what they shown, all that good kind of stuff. Um, so, and, and I might be flying solo. Um, Dorian has Dennis. Dennis Wynn's going to be flying in. They've got a lot on the agenda. Uh, so we'll play it by ear, but Dorian might might be out next week. Probably needs a break after... Uh, <laughs> two big shows back to back. So, um, yeah, maybe, but hopefully, hopefully you can make it. If not, we'll get by without you. I promise. Uh, 
I won't, I won't do, I won't screw up too bad. How about that, Dorian? (laughs) Okay. Well, we'll hold you to that. Okay. Well, I mean, you know, I screw up every show. I start off rough and forget things and I, you know what a mess I am, but I don't think it takes too much from the show. Hopefully not. Uh, Dirt Digest Magazine, there's this, uh, con- there's two contests for this month. Um, you can win a Predator Tools shovel. Uh, whoever is picked for the best article submitted. And there's also a contest for a bumper sticker, a bottle and something else i forget i believe there's three things uh for the best uh submission find submission and hold on randy broke through the door and come running up behind me mom fought chasing him right behind him (laughs) uh so i apologize for that randy learned how to open doors this week and boy does he love opening them we have um we we've had trouble finding the covers, the childproof covers, but uh, we are working on that. We've got some coming, but until then, I apologize. <laughs> Steph's locking the doors. Oh, gee, sorry. I'm sorry, everybody. Uh, he come hauling butt in here, Dorian. You should have seen him. He was running straight for me, running straight oh, for his go. daddy. Yeah, he, 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 he don't want to be left out. See. <laughs> no, now now he's out in the living room throwing a fit. He's mad he can't hang out with dad. You know uh, what? I can't wait till he's old enough to go out metal detecting with me. I just can't. He's getting there. I'm telling you, he's that boy's getting there quick. He's, I think he's going through a grow a, a big growth spurt. He's really been um, sleeping a lot, and that's not like him. And kind of really, um, his energy level's been really down during the day and that's not like him. That boy is like the energizer bunny. He wears he wears us out. And just <laughs> the last about three or four days he's really slowed down, sleeping a lot. Um which isn't like him. But uh let's get into it. I, I think uh well, real quick before we get into it, um I, I like to remind people from time to time we do have a live chat. If you'd like to come in, if you have questions tonight or any night, while, but tonight while Dorian is uh, is going is going through this, um, please come on into chat. Um, when once you're listening to the show, there should be a rectangle box at the bottom has your play button and all that, your pause button. Click on that. It depends on what how you're tuning in. But you can click on that, and there's a little chat bubble. Click on that. You do have to be a member, but you can sign in right through Facebook. It, it just takes a second. It's not not a big thing to do. So if you have questions, you can do that. You can uh, also join us in chat. There's always some good conversations going on. And, um, yeah, that's about it. Let's, uh, let's get into it, Dorian. Okay. Whenever you're ready. Well. All right, what I'd like to ask everybody to do, uh, if you um, will, please, if you'll remember from our last uh, part two of Jesse James and the Wichita's, uh, we had, I posted three sets of photographs uh, that, that pertain to the Wichita's and the treasures there, and the Jesse James specifically, a lot of them. And I'd like you to uh, find uh, part three uh that is supplemental photos part three and uh, i'd like you to bring those up and go to photograph number 
45. Photograph number 45. We'll do just a bit of review here. Uh, if you're, if you happen to be coming in late here, as it were, and you have not heard parts one and two, you might be a little bit lost. Uh, and I would encourage you to go to the archives at the first opportunity and listen to parts one and two, and then anything that doesn't make sense to you in part three hopefully will. So we were getting into uh, a story of Frank James uh, and his uh, actually moving to the Wichita's, building a house there on 160 acres, planting an orchard. Uh, you know, that's obviously something uh, you do if you plan to be there a while. And uh, if you recall, I'm pointing out that, see, if you just regard Jesse and Frank as uh, well-known outlaws, uh, you know, bank and train robbers, then it cuts out a whole uh, a huge portion of what they really were all about. Because remember that they were members of the Knights of the Golden Circle, uh, the High Council, the Inner Circle, as it was called. And they were basically from the time the Civil War ended until 1916, they were fighting a resistance movement, as it were, a continuation of the Civil War. And uh, not only uh, did they conceal a lot of their activities but the federal government also censored uh, articles and things that would point this out to the American public because they did not want the American public to know that the Civil War really hadn't ended when they had officially declared it over. They, you know, it did not end when Robert E. Lee surrendered at Appomattox. It continued in another form as a resistance movement. You know, it's a very similar situation. If you look at World War II, you have France that was uh, quickly conquered by Germany. Uh, somebody said it, the French are lovers and not fighters. And uh, they really don't have a uh, sterling record when it comes to fighting uh, wars, uh, especially, you know, in the, oh, the last century or two. Uh, anyway, it's not that, uh, um, well, they just don't have that war mindset that the Germans do. And, uh, the Germans conquered France quickly, but the French, uh, while they had performed basically poorly on the battlefield, they, as a resistance movement, you know, Frenchmen uh, dressed in civilian clothes that uh, attacked German convoys and ambushes and uh, performed assassinations of German officers and so on, they were highly uh, successful. And the Germans actually, you know, tried to keep, uh, keep it under wraps just how successful the French resistance movement was. So as it turned out, uh, you know, sometimes when a, a particular ethnic group of people is not good at one part of warfare, they're good at another. And so the French were very good in the, in the department, in, in the resistance movement type warfare. 
Um, well, anyway, the, the Confederates were also very good at it. And, you know, they, uh, they needed, they needed to, to make sure that the public was not aware that they were trying to accumulate funds to fight a second civil war because that could have stirred up Southern people, especially to begin to, to resist and uh, to bring even stronger oppression, cause the union army to get even larger uh, you know, and martial law to be declared over the whole South and so on. So that was part of the reason why that they concealed, even from the Southern people, just, uh, you know, what they were doing and how successful had they, uh, been able to reignite the civil war, then they would have, of course, made themselves known and the, um, you know, it would, it would have gone on. But as it turned out in my research, I discovered that the Golden Circle itself was under the control secretly, again. Boy, a lot of secrets, different levels of secrets. It's kind of like an artichoke. You ever peel an artichoke? It's got layers, you know. And you, you peel away a layer and you think you're at the heart of the artichoke, and you're not. And you peel away another layer, then there's another layer under that, and another layer under that. Well, this is kind of the way it was with secrets and deception. And the... Uh, Golden Circle people that were hiding these treasures and building the depositories and things, they did not know that uh, the Golden Circle itself was under control at the top of the Knights Templars and that the Templars had been hiding treasure caches for thousands of years and that these caches were not intended to ever actually be used to fight a second civil war. They were intended to be put away as part of their vast treasure holdings uh, because they believe that at a particular time in the future, there's a certain king that will arise uh, and that they want these funds available for his use uh, as he, they believe he will be a world ruler. But anyway, I don't want to go too far down that rabbit trail tonight. I want to get back into the, uh, the Wichita's here, the area around the Wichita's. Um, we were talking uh, last time, we just got into the story about Frank James, you know, is looking for a supposedly $64,000 treasure. If you remember, it was one where they got caught in a blizzard, supposedly, and they had all these mules full of gold, and they just let the gold uh, sink into the snow, you know, at the bottom of a ravine, and then they burned the pack saddles for warmth and so on. And, you know, all of that makes interesting reading, but it's fiction. It's just not the way the Golden Circle worked. So Frank James had no need to move to the Wichita's just so he could find a $64,000 treasure. Um, he had funds available. Both he and Jesse had their private funds uh, the men who served on the council, you know, uh, they didn't talk about it, but they were well paid for their services. Uh, they got us percentage of the gold and, uh, uh, you know, the, 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 uh, 
earnings from the investments when they took the gold and they bought railroad stocks and, you know, got into Wall Street and made more fortunes with the fortunes they stole. So Jesse and, and Frank ended up very wealthy men. And Jesse Lee James told me that at the time of his father's or his grandfather's death, uh, he was, uh, the state was worth $2 billion, with a B, dollars, $2 billion. And uh, as an aside, I think you'll find interesting, the James relatives, cousins and so on, descended on Granbury, Texas, where Jesse, old Jesse died. And uh, they were in a group yelling and demanding their share of Jesse's estate from Jesse Lee, who was, was the executor of the old man's estate. And when Jesse Lee saw the incredible greed and selfishness in the family members, even before old Jesse was in the ground, they hadn't even buried him yet. He basically told him, you know, you're not going to get a penny because I'm not going to probate the will. And he never did. Jesse's will was never probated and, uh, none of the family ever got a penny. So, uh, that we know of. So anyway, uh, the point is Frank, Frank was there for other reasons. And I think I've made the point quite well that the Wichita's were an awesome place that drew treasure hunters and gold seekers, uh, and has for hundreds and hundreds of years. And we're going to get into a lot of stories, uh, after we finish this one about Frank James to give you an idea of all the treasure stories that are connected with this area, uh, beyond just the ones related to Jesse James. So if, uh, those of you that were, were listening that were with us on, on the second part there, you remember Frank had met a lady named bell headland and, uh, he was looking for a particular rock on her farm. And, uh, he finally told her who he was and which kind of scared her for a little while, but she got to know him because he kept coming back and he kept looking. And, uh, I really think that all of this so-called treasure hunting that Frank is going to be doing here as we go through this, I think it was a cover. I think it gave him an opportunity or gave him an excuse to be in the area. People got used to seeing moving about. And I think there was something much bigger than a $64,000 treasure, uh, that he was, excuse me, pardon me, <coughs> pardon me, <clears throat> uh, did a little mowing today and I kicked up some stuff that kind of bothered my allergies a little. So I have to apologize if I sneeze occasionally here. <clears throat> If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And MIDI can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. 
Maybe you think they're just part of getting older. But Mini Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. All right. So as a history detective, see, I'm looking at these stories and I'm saying, okay, I know enough to know that Frank James is not out there spending his life looking for a $64,000, you know, treasure. Um, we, uh, let's see, did we get to the one that first one that he found? He knew where our treasures were buried. Uh, and if you, if you examine the story carefully, you'll spot flaws and holes in it. And that is what a history detective, a treasure hunter who would be a treasure finder has to do. You have to find the flaws and the things that don't add up and, and uh, account for those, you know, and get them out of the way so you can stick to the facts uh, as they are. Because when you're dealing with a golden circle, cover stories are a dime a dozen. Uh, they're, you know, they're going to let you think, yeah, okay, the old outlaws were here doing this and that, and they were looking for that, but that's not what they were really doing. That was simply their cover story to give them a reason to be in that area to do what, you know, they were really doing. So did the Golden Circle have uh, really rich gold mines? Did they find the mother load in the Wichita's that the other prospectors never did? I think it's very possible. But I also think that they've got that they put away at least one or maybe more huge caches of wealth that have not been recovered yet. And I think the federal government knew that they were there, but not where. And that's why that the whole Wichita fifty nine thousand acres got became federal property. All right, now let's pick up the story. Uh Let's see if you are at, uh, if you pulled up the photographs slide number 45 in part three of the supplemental photos is a picture of the buzzard roost. And this has to do with the, uh, bell headland property story here. So I'm, I'm going to back up. We were barely into it. So I'm just going to go ahead and, and, and uh, pick it up where he shows up on her property and he didn't identify himself initially. He required about an old spring, inquired about an old spring and some symbols etched on a rock and asked miss Mrs. Headland whether he could look over her land. She was curious and she walked along with the strangers. He poked an iron rod into the ground in an inviting spot. She showed him the only spring she knew about at the foot of a lone knoll with a natural cave through one side known as Buzzard Roost. If you look in the picture, you'll see to the left of the little knob on top of the hill, you'll see a hole, uh, obviously goes all the way through. That's what's being talked about here. And supposedly he made the, the statement, if this is the right place, this is Jesse's kitchen. 
uh, and he pointed to a nearby rock as he bent down to reach under a stone. Soon he pulled out a rusted spoon. So then he revealed himself to her and he continued the visits. And as Frank continued his search, he confided in Mrs. Headland that he was seeking $64,000 that Jesse had taken during a robbery in Independence, Missouri. Jesse had carved a map and directions on a large rock and turned it upside down. Well, of course, Frank, you know, absolutely knew that his younger brother was not dead. Uh, so he could, you know, if he needed to find something that Jesse hid, he would have consulted Jesse and Jesse would have drawn him an exact map on how to find it. So this is all part of a cover that, that, uh, Frank is establishing as we go along here. If you'll pardon me just a moment, again, the allergy thing, I'm going to have to blow my nose. Hang on. Okay. Maybe that'll hold me for a while. Okay. Let's see. See, here was the point. Frank said that, you know, Jesse and his gang, and, and they had camped at this spring on many an occasion. And yet Frank can't find this rock. If he's been there on many occasion, you know, when they hid the gold. And he told, uh, see, Frank's revealing a lot. You got to remember Frank was a, a very high ranking Mason, 33rd degree Mason, um, they, they were sworn to secrecy. The whole, you know, the whole golden circle thing was a Masonic organization. Um, he's not going to be going, going around giving out stuff like this, uh, where he says, he tells that Jesse drew a similar map on his boot, later transferred it to paper and gave it to his mother. Well, see his, supposedly his mother was the relative Samuels, but as I've pointed out in, in our previous, uh, Studies of Jesse James, uh, Jesse and Frank's mother was Molly Dalton, not, not Zarelda Samuels. Uh, and of course his mother and, and father were in Kentucky near Frankfurt, uh, on a, on a plantation there or a big farm on, I believe on, it was on the Versailles Pike. I'm still looking for the house, which was a two story stone structure. Uh, I'm hoping it's still standing, but I have not found it yet. Okay. Uh, so as we go along here, sometime later, Frank found some of the markings he was seeking at the foot of buzzard roost. He found the carving of a rock or excuse me, a pair of crossed rifles cut deeply into a rock. Or right, you remember last time we looked at, we looked at golden circle treasure signs and how they cut symbols like rattlesnakes and, 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 there another one they also did that I didn't mention, uh, pistols. I should have uh, pulled my files and, and put some pictures up there of some of the pistols that they carved into, uh, the flat rocks that where the barrel, uh, either the barrel or the, uh, handle, you know, the butt in would point towards the next marker. So, um, he found this pair of cross rifles and the barrel of one pointed to an agent tree on which were the the letters M O O with a period M M period O period O period 
and below the letter Y beneath the carvings was a mule shoe nailed into a blaze. And of course, as I mentioned, the blaze was a, a big, uh, flat spot cut with a knife or an ax on the side of a tree. And so the horseshoe was nailed into that spot, uh, as a marker, not far from that tree, Frank unearthed a copper kettle with a crock cover containing $6,000 or so he said one old settler who was sure that Frank's claim was true was uncle Billy Royce, who owned the farm adjacent to Mrs. Headlands. So Billy Royce had met Frank James when he was 14 years old. He was a cook, one of the cooks for, uh, Buffalo Bill Cody on a Buffalo hunting expedition where, uh, Frank actually, you know, basically by chance, uh, came upon them and, uh, had dinner with them. So, uh, in the little town of cement, Frank was buying supplies and Royce spotted him, took a double look and said, hollered out, hello, Frank. And the old outlaw wheeled around, supposedly staring. And then he tells him, he reminds him, you know, I'm, I'm Billy Royce. You know, I, I cooked a supper of help cook a supper of venison and, uh, turkey for you. And, uh, Frank t- tells me he, you know, he, he, ne- he can never forget that hot meal or that good meal. And, uh, so anyway, uh, Royce later after he grew up there, he scouted for the government, became a construction supervisor or superintendent for a railroad. And finally, he homesteaded in the Keechee Hills and coincidentally, the very place where Frank and Jesse had hidden part of their booty and hold up on more occasions than Frank cared to recall. I'm, uh, what I'm reading into that is that he was inducted into the Masons and then into the Golden Circle and probably became a sentinel in that area. Uh, this, this man Royce that fits the pattern of what happens here, because what are the odds that he's going to move there, you know, and, uh, remember he's much younger than Frank. So Frank knew that, you know, at some point he's going to have to relinquish his duties to younger people. So it says that, that, you know, here again, Frank divulges what he's hunting to Billy Royce. Well, he wouldn't do that. See, unless it was a brother Mason, uh, or unless he was trying to recruit Billy Royce into the KGC organization, which is a lot more likely. So you got to learn to kind of read between the, it's almost like interpreting another language, uh, cover stories have holes in them and you have to find the holes that prove to you, you're not dealing with the facts that you're looking for. You're dealing with a cover story. So Frank supposedly recovered at least $6,000 in the Keechee Hills. And whether he actually recovered 64,000, no one knew for sure. Uh, I don't think he did. Uh, 6,000 6, gold $6,000 in $20 gold pieces is $320 gold pieces. And back then, uh, their value would be, oh, well, way over $50,000 today. 
So that would have, you know, done Frank really well there. I mean, he, he's supposedly a farmer, you know, he's got his orchard and everything. What, what, what does he need to, you know, fortune and money for you see $64,000 would be a half a million, uh, in, you know, in gold at that time, you know, gold was what? $20 an ounce. And, uh, here I have, I don't keep up with it all the time, but I checked about a week or so ago and it, it hit $1,750 an ounce. So, um, I think that was part of the cover story. Like I said, it would give Frank, you know, everybody would expect to see him out there in the hills, riding here and there, you know, looking and, and so on. Uh, because supposedly this was a cache that he tirelessly searched for time and time again. And it's interesting. See, now let me show you something about the writer. I'm not, I'm not picking on Steve Wilson in the sense, I think, I think that his book is an excellent work and, you know, I wouldn't have it in my library if I didn't, if, if I didn't think it was, uh, but, you know, I talked about how he uses purple prose to kind of dramatize, you know, and make you think, oh, wow. Yeah. You know, that's really exciting. Uh, look what he says. He says, uh, let's see, where was I just read? Whether he actually recovered $64,000, no one knew for sure. And that's a true statement. But then he says, just you know, less than a paragraph down here, uh, one thing for sure, a case Frank tirelessly searched for time and time again, he never found. Well, see, right, just a paragraph up, he said, no one knows. And then he says one thing for sure. Well, that's a contradiction, plain and simple. But the first statement is true. The second one is not. He doesn't know if, if Frank ever found that cash. If Frank uh, wanted that cash found, you know, and dug up, then he would have found it. He was out and about doing other things. That's how he wore out those six horses they talk about. And he says, and yet he must have walked over it a thousand times. The pot of gold and pot it was had been buried by Jesse. Frank had never known where. His mother had told him the vague details passed on to her by Jesse, but somehow they got twisted around and it was too late to double check. See, that, that, that's patently false. That's just not what was going on. Jesse and Frank, you know, were, were in, uh, communication with each other all the way up to the time that Frank died. Cause Frank died first. He was older than Jesse and Jesse lived a lot longer than Frank. Okay. Let's see. We want to, okay. From the time Frank retrieved the cash of gold, that is the $6,000. You want to see the pot it was in go to, Photograph number 46. And that's Mrs. Bell Hedlund on the right. And the man that 
in that picture is Joe Hunter, uh, who was a lawman who became a treasure hunter. And we'll be talking about Joe Hunter here just shortly. The, uh, number 46. And in 47, uh, you'll see some of the things that were in the kettle. Now, Wilson says the kettle had a crock top, and yet it's plain to see that it's a, uh, it didn't. And supposedly this was a copper kettle. This was not the copper kettle. The facts got confused. This is a cast iron kettle that had the money in it. And uh, think about it. Frank finds this kettle, lets the word leak out deliberately that it had $6,000 in it. And it totally verifies people's impressions that what Frank's looking for lost treasure that his brother hid. So they're not suspecting him of doing anything else. Great cover story. Dig up a little treasure that proves that, you know, that, that, uh, you're there and, uh, for the right, for the reasons that you're telling everybody, Frank was way too talkative and giving out way too many details. That wasn't like Frank James, his entire life. He was very close lipped, uh, And it's obvious that he's creating an image of himself and his activities, which is a cover for something much, much bigger. Okay. So Wilson says, you know, that, that uh, he says, Frank must have walked over to the spot where this cash, you know, this 64,000 buried a thousand times. Um, okay. From the time Frank retrieved the cache of gold, Royce became, now this is Billy Royce, became a persistent treasure hunter of the Keechee Hills. So he picks up a cover story. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Uh, he can go out and he can make uh, a circuit between various places where valuables uh, are buried that they don't want anybody to dig up. And everybody says, well, he's out looking for Jesse James Treasure. You see how innocent that is? Everybody's going to buy into that. So let that be a lesson to us about cover stories. That's very interesting. You're actually, see, your real job is protecting treasures, but you tell the public that you're looking for treasures. Very, very uh, good cover story.
Okay, so Royce becomes a persistent treasure hunter. And in a, in a, a newspaper article about him in 1932, the 80-year-old settler reported that within only a few days of, the, of, of this interview, a niece of Frank James and some male companions were due to arrive on a mysterious hunt. What, if anything, they found has never been learned, but the story of Frank's niece turns up time and time again in as many locations over the Wichita Mountains. What she was seeking, she, like her uncle, kept to herself. Plenty of people talked with her, but she divulged little. Very close mouth. Now, she, of course, as a woman, would not have been a mason. She would have been Order of the Eastern Star, which is the Masonic organization for their women. So after Frank had died, you know, he moved back to Missouri. He didn't die here in the uh, Wichita's. He did move back to Missouri. Uh, you know, at the time that his age would not allow him to stay in the saddle so much. Uh, he went back and I'm not exactly sure where I have not researched Frank near as much as I have Jesse. That'd be an interesting project to see what Frank did after he got back in Missouri. Okay. Um, I'm sure it is researchable. So then he, then Wilson says there was at least one other cache that Frank removed successfully from its secret depository. And there are stories of still others. Everett Cook, no, no relation to me that I know of, a ranger for the Black Beaver Council Boy Scout Camp near Apache, Oklahoma, remembers th uh, this story well. One day in May, soon after Frank James had settled on his farm near Fletcher, he says, my, my father-in-law, Harvey Yoder, was sitting at the window of his home near Cash Creek. Now, that's an interesting creek. I have seen Cash Creek. Uh, been on Cash Creek. Uh, it got that name because it is believed that there there is treasure buried on that creek or along that creek. And this was about seven miles northwest of Apache. It was early morning, and he was writing a letter on the windowsill. It was a warm day, and the window was raised. And as Harvey spoke, he heard someone walking across his yard. He looked up to see a covered wagon stopped in the road and a man halfway to his door. He was a tall man past middle age and Harvey saw immediately. He was a man who had spent many long years in the outdoors. His face was weather beaten and he walked with the bow legged gait of a man used to having a horse under him. He wore cowboy clothing, including boots and spurs, even though he was riding in a wagon. After the usual good mornings, he asked Harvey where the most, the next crossing was down the Creek. Harvey told him it was about a mile farther down. The stranger thought it over for a minute, then asked if there wasn't another crossing this side of there near a big cottonwood tree. Harvey said, yes, there was, but it hadn't been used since the country opened. That is, you know, it was open to settlement. It was Indian land, and then they opened it to general settlement. The stranger thanked him and drove off. So Harvey finished his letter, saddled up his horse, and started towards the mailbox, which was four or five miles away. When he got down the road a little piece, he saw the man in the wagon had stopped 
and was unhitching his horses. And as he rode abreast, the man said that the young horse he was driving had the colic and he was going to have to stop a while until the animal recovered. He also added that he was a prospector going to the Wichita's to look for gold. As far as looking for gold was concerned, he was telling the truth. About the time Harvey noticed there was another man in the wagon sitting in the spring seat. His back was turned and he pretended to be busy with something on the floor of the wagon behind the seat. As he rode past, Harvey got a good look at his face and he positively recognized him as Frank James, who was well known in these parts by this time. Harvey rode on down the road, but couldn't help but wonder what Frank and the stranger were up to. Well, obviously, if they had a wagon, they are going to move something heavy, right? It was noon before Harvey returned from the mailbox. As he rode into the yard, his wife went to the door and told him that as soon as he had left, the two men had come back by the house and walked down to the creek carrying a shovel. A while later, they came back on the opposite side of the creek carrying a kettle between them. Harvey walked down to the big cottonwood tree and almost fell into a hole that he had seen dug or had been dug in the middle of the trail, right even with the big cottonwood. He found the imprint where the big pot had set. A few feet away from the hole, he found several handfuls of rifle shells of old rimfire type. Apparently, Frank had dumped them over the creek bank, thinking they would fall into the water. Neither Harvey Yoder or his wife saw into the kettle, but the evidence was certainly... All there. What better place would you could you have hidden money than in the middle of a trail? Okay. So that was a case. Frank knew where it was, and uh, he may not have buried it, but he had been given instructions on how to find it, and that's why they stopped and asked the guy about the cottonwood or about the. Uh, yeah, about the other crossing. So it's very possible that, the, you see, they would bury caches along what they call the Alhoot Trail. Uh, that could be accessed quickly. They were not deep. They were not huge caches. They were not millions of dollars, but they were thousands of dollars. And if there was an emergency or funds were needed for some uh, particular mission that the Golden Circle got involved in, or to finance, uh, you know, the equipment for a, a raid on something or, or whatever, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> they could, uh, they, they could go to these caches, dig them up without a lot of drama and, uh, then put them to the use that they needed to do. Let's see here. Okay. So that was one story. This is an interesting uh, thing here. Frank James confided several friends that he was seeking outlaw treasure. Again, see, Frank's not going to go around telling that to everybody unless he wants that believed by everybody. His best friend in Fletcher, bank president E.W. Dilling, knew it, recalled L.A. Owen of Fletcher, who as a young man saw Frank James on many occasions. <coughs> Excuse me, I'm going to grab a drink of water here. 
He said, uh, Owen was talking with Dilling when someone rushed into his office announcing that several men were digging for Frank's treasure. Dilling left out in a hurry, apparently to check the story. Why would the president of the bank, I can understand if this guy was a newspaper man, but why the president of the bank left out in a hurry? Very likely, he he's almost certainly a Freemason and, and almost... I would say probably a very good likelihood that he was KGC. And that's why he rushed out to see who was, what was going on. Even after Frank and his wife moved back to Missouri, his wife would return to Fletcher to visit the Dillings, often staying as much as a month at a time and continued those visits after Frank died. So you see there's a strong connection there. On another occasion, Owen remembered Joe Cable once asked Frank about a mule train of gold in Mexico. Frank thought about it for a moment, then in his usual fashion of answering such questions in a half-serious, half-joking manner, replied that they shot the mules and ran off the Mexicans. So Wilson says there's no question that Frank James dug up Two caches hidden near the Wichita Mountains. Uh, and there are rumors that he recovered more. Even as many as 14, each carefully guarded by the landmarks known only to him or Jesse. Even though Frank recovered a portion of the outlaw loot, he did not retrieve it all because he did not find the brass bucket with the outlaw contract carved into it. Nor did he find, find the iron teapot, which he must have walked over. Th okay, then I, I'm leading you astray. I said that iron teapot in the picture was the one with the $6,000. Apparently it was not, according to Wilson here. Sometimes his, his information is a little bit contradictory or confusing. Um uh, Okay, so when Frank James finally left his Oklahoma farm about 1914, only a year before he was to die, he must have thought often of the brass bucket contract and the $2 million in gold hidden during that bitter winter so many years before. Perhaps it was his niece who came back to find them with Frank's final instructions. If so, she was no more successful than he. Try hard, though she did. Okay. Now enter treasure hunter Joe Hunter. Okay. Joe uh, began a long search for the brass bucket in 1932. And that was the same year that Frank's niece made a final attempt, they believed, to find her uncle's gold. So one day, while Hunter was serving as a peace officer in Rush Springs, a gaunt, silver-haired oldster tottered into, into his office asking for him. He told Hunter that his name was Cook. Well, how about that? And that he did not, that he need not know more than that. He urged the peace officer to drive him outside town. 
Only there would he tell a story which he believed Hunter would be interested in. Uh, most of your peace officers in that part of the country are Masons. Um, I, I know that for a fact. Most of the Texas State Highway Patrol are Masons and wear Masonic rings. Um, so Hunter had nothing better to do that day. So I would say that he probably saw Hunter's ring and, uh, or knew had been told that he was a Mason. And so he says, uh, he, uh, left with the stranger and about three miles south of rush Springs alone with Hunter in his car. Cook unfolded a story so bizarre that Hunter at first found it difficult to believe. Cook revealed that because of his past friendship with Hunter's father, he wanted him to have some treasure charts. If Hunter found the golden money, the old man asked only for a rightful share. Cook appeared to be about 85 years old and showed signs of having lived a rugged past. He handed Hunter three maps, two made on cowhide and a third on goatskin, saying the time was now too short to spend it hunting blood that his time was now too short to spend it hunting blood money. Okay. He says, he told Hunter, we buried it there about 62 years ago. I hope you can find it. It'll be near a pile of rocks. Hunter and the old man then parted company. And the first and last, it was the first and last time Hunter ever saw him. The peace officer was skeptical of Cook's story, but Cook talked as if he must have been there. Hunter had no idea then that the treasure maps would haunt him for the remainder of his days, causing him to abandon job and family alike when he thought the trail was warm. Oh yeah, we call that treasure hunting fever. Had my share of it. I spent two years hunting treasure professionally in my life. So I, uh, <laughs> I know what that's like. And I, uh, sadly, uh, I did manage to find three cache sites, uh, very large caches. And, uh, I got there too late on all three. They'd all been removed, found the holes, the empty holes where they came out of. So anyway, um, let me pick up the story here again. Let's see. First key to the hidden money was another map inscribed on rock and buried in the rugged Wichita's. Cook described the place well to Hunter, and as he later learned, it was only because of the old man's vivid description of the land that he uncovered the flat rock. By following the three maps, Hunter found a pile of rocks using the uh, calm, using the, oh, cairn, C-A-I-R-N, using the cairn, that is the pile of rocks, and a distant landmark as two points of an equilateral triangle, he located what appeared to be a third point, an old scrub oak. Hunter soon chopped out the rock map from a hollow beneath the gnarled roots of the aged tree. He had no idea at that time that his search along the ancient trail of bloodstained treasure, there's your purple prose, 
would last over a long period of years. Otherwise, he might well have quit long before he found the tantalizing clues. Clues that goaded him on always another day, another year. Now, his first discovery revealed that Cook had known what he was talking about. Soon, Hunter uh, discovered that Jesse and Frank James had established their own system of codes to lead them back to hidden caches, usually buried on the spur of the moment when time was precious and money only extra weight or when there was plenty of time and no place to spend the money. Yeah, well, that sounds good, and that would be you know very logical if Jesse and Frank were only common or even extraordinary outlaws. But... Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Full work limited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, guys. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games games released each week you can play for free anytime anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses so join me in the fun sign up now at chumbacasino.com no purchase necessary btw void were prohibited by law see terms and conditions 18 plus obviously they were leaders in a resistance movement with a very very specific goals Okay, Uh, the Golden Circle used at least seven different codes in marking treasure sites. One of these I've got a picture of, not a very good picture, unfortunately, was taken back in the 70s by the man who found it. It was in Oklahoma. Uh, I never knew exactly where in Oklahoma but it was a big round cave room and it had about knee height all around this room, probably in a line over 50 feet long, Egyptian hieroglyphics carved into the sandstone. Now these weren't carved by the Egyptians. Egyptian hieroglyphics were one of the seven codes that were used by the Knights of the Golden Circle to mark treasure sites. Okay, let's see. Pick up a story on Hunter again. Many of the markings corresponded to symbols used by the Spaniards. Later, Hunter came into possession of two more maps improvised by Jesse James, both of which were to prove valuable in his later searches. The charts had been left with an elderly man in eastern Oklahoma whose name Hunter never revealed. The old man was aware that he possessed the maps was unaware that he possessed the maps until he had had them for five years. They had been hidden in the false bottom of a small chest. Soon after their discovery, Hunter fell heir to them. I know now that I have the granddaddies of all the treasure maps, Hunter said in 1948. (laughs) I was one year old then. 
Okay. When he revealed much about his discoveries, they have never been wrong. Jesse made one of these maps on a huge cowhide, the other on the tongue of his boot. Twenty-five years later, after Frank James Long quest in the Keechee Hills, Miss Bell Headland found the strange rock he had so patiently sought. It happened one spring day when Miss Headland was attracted to a large stone that appeared unnatural in its position. Now, let me ask you something. Do you think Frank James wouldn't have noticed this stone that appeared unnatural in its position? You know he, you know he would. It reminded her of what Frank had told her years before. When she had turned it over, it was obviously the stone Frank had sought. Strange markings were etched on its underside, but there was no clear directions telling where to find the buried gold. Joe Hunter read of Mrs. Headland's strange find. It was the moment he'd been waiting for. Till then, he had not known of Frank's early search on the Headland farm. The next day, he got in touch with the aging schoolteacher. He studied the rock closely, and with the information he had from his own maps, he concluded that part of the treasure must be buried on the Headland farm, just as Frank himself had insisted. People had long ridiculed the idea of the James boys burying any of their ill-gotten gains. Even Hunter thought it was incredible. But if his maps were authentic, the treasure had to be there. And I will remind, remind my audience that uh, unlike, you know, all the other outlaws, all the other American outlaws, so-called outlaws, uh, usually the claims of what they stole and buried are, are grossly exaggerated. You know, a, a, a $3,000 bank robbery, you know, becomes $30,000 in gold coins and, and so on. Uh, but Jesse and Frank were actually, you know, actually stole uh, quite a few times more than history gives them credit for. Because they were stealing, especially from the northern bankers, and especially Jay Gould, the worst of the lot. And the bankers and Gould did not want the public to know how bad their losses were. Now you have to understand these people were so absolutely filthy rich, they could they could take big hits, they could lose a lot of gold shipments on trains and banks without going out of business, if you know what I mean. They didn't like it. They tried to stop it. But anyway, Hunter, uh, <clears throat> even though combining the rock map with his maps that, that he had, it took Hunter, now listen to this, because there's a good point here. 40 successive trips to the Keechee Hills before his searches yielded dividends, in other words, before they paid off. Only then did he unearth what Frank James must have wanted the most, the iron teapot. It was buried deep under the surface, just north of Buzzard Roost, the one knoll with a natural hole through it, a perfect landmark. As Joe Hunter's spade struck the iron pot, he
He could not believe his eyes. The maps were genuine. The old man cook had not steered him wrong. Well, there you go. See, we cooks are, you know, we're good people to know. <laughs> okay, I'm laughing at my own jokes here. <laughs> I'm laughing too. All right. <laughs> okay. So Hunter brought the kettle to the surface, and the lid was rusted shut, but he pried it open, and it was not overflowing with gold, but it held enough to make Hunter search for treasure, search the treasure trail for the rest of his days with a mania that only a treasure hunter can understand. Inside the kettle was a small fortune in gold bullion, a quantity of jewels, several old coins, a large keywinder watch with a coin silver case, and a rolled sheet of copper. One coin was an 1841 United States penny, another a French five-franc piece dated 1811. Now, those dates and those coins... This is not uh, meant solely to be a cache of treasure. All of those have meaning to the KGC. The, the particular dates, the fact it was a penny, uh, and the fact that this is a French five-franc piece, and that it was dated 1811, all of that is significant. Uh, to persons carrying the key or instructions, they would know how to read that. They would know what that, what that was telling them. All these objects, like the watch in this uh, in this pot, all of those things uh, tie together. Uh, this was uh, the gold bullion was frankly a distraction. Because imagine, think about this: you're hunting treasure, and you dig up. You know, you follow these maps, and you dig up this iron pot. And it doesn't have anything but these few coins and the watch in it. What are you going to think? You know, it was buried deep. And and look and all the effort it took to find it, and all the maps that were made. You know, all I mean, all the work that went into this, and and it's only about a few coins and a watch. No, the gold bullion was to give it give it credibility. It was to draw attention away. Who cares about an 80, you know, 1841 large cent or a five franc, 1811 five franc piece if you're, if you're holding gold bullion in your hands, right? See how that works? In case it was accidentally found or found by someone they didn't want finding it, that was designed uh, to draw their attention away from these what looked like just little mundane items. But these items were very, very important. Hunter turned the gold over to Mrs. Headland, but retained the other articles. He placed a value of $5,000 on the watch because of its historical significance. Inscriptions on the watch indicated it was number 3,400, manufactured by the New York Watch Company of Springfield, Massachusetts. And uh, <clears throat> probably even that, even the number of the watch, has meaning, uh, you know, to the proper persons had they excavated it. And here Wilson speculates the timepiece had probably been taken during a holdup by Jesse for it had the name Theo E. Studley engraved in it. And, and, and I'll tell you this right now, 
Jesse's robbing a bank or a train. He's not robbing the passengers or the people in the bank of their watches. Okay. That watch was specifically there for a greater purpose. The item of which Hunter was most proud was the sheet of copper, a treasure waybill in itself. Well, that's not the first time that a sheet of copper contained a treasure map. Uh, when I was working in Israel on my biblical archaeology projects and explorations, I went to what's called the Shrine of the Book, and this is where the Dead Sea Scrolls are kept that were found. I think everybody's heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Well, they were all parchment, you know, uh, papyrus, I think. But one was copper. It was rolled up. And it took them a long time to unroll it. And the uh, Israelis never revealed for years and years what was on the copper scroll. Well, it turned out uh, that it was a treasure map or a list of 117 treasures hidden by the Levitical priests. And that's why they kept it secret until they had, you know, had made an effort to find those treasures. How many of them they found, it's not known. They're not saying. Okay, so now he's, he, Joe Hunter has a copper map. Man, I'm sitting here getting excited just reading this stuff. <laughs> I'm telling you, you, you can't help it. You just can't help it. Here's this mysterious copper map. And uh, it, it was a, you know, what the old timers used to call treasure maps, they called them waybills, waybills. So uh, this was a treasure waybill in itself. And exactly what Frank James had hunted so relentlessly, supposedly about two and a half feet long and eight or 10 inches wide. The copper chart gave further details and code marks to a treasure trail that necessitated a full fledged detective and code cipher to unravel. That's see that right there tells you this was KGC. This was golden circle business. This was very, very important. They went to an awful lot of trouble. It was two years later that Hunter uncovered the next clue. And this time it was on open prairie and careful calculations led Hunter to it. Several feet into the earth, his shovel struck an object that indicated he was on the right track. Nearby, he dug another hole, which yielded an old pick head. It's handled long decayed. When he dug still another such hole, again, he found a rusted pick head. It's handle too was gone, but bore the inscription Douglas Axe Manufacturing Company Hunt. The lettering on the other head had been hammered out. Still another hidden clue was a 70 pound iron wedge. It told Hunter a story that only he knew how to interpret and told him in which direction to proceed. I found, uh, you know, the Jesse James and the famous, uh, oh, what is the word? Is it agronomist? Uh, 
botanical genius Luther Burbank were friends and Luther Burbank taught him how to graft limbs onto trees. And so they marked the Hudal trail with these, what we call Hudal trail trees and a Hudal trail tree has a limb coming out at an exact 90 degree angle. And it will go out so far before it bends up towards the sky. Uh, I have pictures of me uh, metal detecting underneath one of these Hoodal trail trees in the Wichita's in Oklahoma. And I've never revealed this before, but I dug down four feet as I was told to by Jesse the third. And, uh, there was an, uh, a, a triangular shaped piece of metal. You had to be very careful not to disturb the metal because it pointed the way to the next treasure marker. That was the beginning of a trail to a KGC cache. <clears throat> As it turned out, uh, I was running out of daylight. And so I had to be back at work. This was on a Sunday and I had to be back at work at the Garrett factory on Monday. And, uh, anyway, life took some twists and turns and I never got back to follow up on that. <clears throat> Okay, but anyway, uh, so this kind of thing that's being talked about here, I am very familiar with uh, as being <clears throat> something that the KGC did frequently. And it's awfully important when you're digging these markers up not to move them out of place before you document exactly which direction, you know, all the points on them are pointing on or pointing in because the, if you move them out of place, pull them out of the hole without doing that, you're going to make it awfully hard to find the next marker. And you may go through. Oh, eight to 25 markers to get to the actual treasure site. The KGC loved, I mean, they were loved and, and they, and they did a lot of this and they were good at it. They love to, uh, have convoluted trails, false trails, you know, that would lead you away. Um, you know, it's not unknown to, to even lead you into a, uh, a dangerous area, you know, where rock slides or a booby trap, you know, uh, a boulder that could come crashing down on you, things like that. And this is why so many of their caches, you know, they went to so much trouble to hide these. This is why so many uh, are still in the ground and not been recovered. Okay, so... The subsequent with lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> no, Lucky Land Casino with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Subsequent treasure key, the cipher breaker, unearthed, proved to be the most interesting during his entire search and perhaps the most worthy in terms of historical value. This was the old brass bucket itself with its contract chiseled deeply into the brass metal, binding each outlaw to secrecy. Hunter had indeed dug up a piece of the past, heretofore only an ingredient in a romantic legend. Now, if you'll go to uh, slide number 49, you will see this brass bucket. Uh, some of the writing has been chalked in, so you can see that it is writing engraved in the bucket. Uh, there's Jesse James just a few years before he died. And, of course, Joe Hunter on the, uh, on the right. This was taken about just before Jesse came out of the closet. And as I mentioned last time, Joe Hunter thought he was talking to J. Frank Dalton, an old outlaw that had ridden with the Jameses. He had no idea that he was showing Jesse James the own brass, you know, his own brass bucket that he had carved his contract on. Isn't that funny? I mean, here's a, uh, Joe Hunter, the lawman, and Jesse James, the outlaw, in this picture. This is a this is a classic picture. I may have to have to get a blow up made of this and have it framed and hang on the wall. Uh, if you go to the next slide, slide number fifty. You'll see uh, a photo, a copy of a letter that was sent to me by Jesse James III, and I blew up the picture, which is up in the upper, uh, your upper left corner as you're looking at it. Uh, be the right, upper right corner of the letter, I guess, actually. And I blew it up so you could see what it is. It's, uh, it's, it's uh, J. Frank Dalton, Jesse James, and Jesse Lee James III with the brass bucket, and he had that in all of the letters, I have, uh, probably six or seven of his letters. Uh, and you can see, if you look, you can see that it's addressed to me. It says, dear Dorian. So there's your proof that Jesse and I were in, uh, communicating and, uh, became very good friends. Okay. Now let's go back to Joe Hunter here. The secret pact on the, on the bucket had been lost to history for 72 years. And most of the outlaws names on the bucket were men about whom little was little was known. Isn't that interesting? Because they were KGC and, and, and you know, they, they didn't want a lot to be known about them in 1948 at the foot of looming Tarbone mountain. Let's see, we can go back and take a look at Tarbone. That is, uh, on your pictures. That's picture number 49. No, I'm sorry. Correction. Number 48. There's Tarbone Mountain. If you want to take a look at that. So Tarbone is on the north edge of the Wichita's. And uh, 
that's where Joe Hunter unearthed the copper bucket or the brass bucket. Again, brass or copper? Uh, one or the other. <laughs> okay. Not too much difference. Brass is what copper with tin added to it. Okay. Let's see. This, the fifth day of March in the year of our Lord, 1876, read the contract. We, the undersigned, do this day organize a bounty bank. We will go to the west side of the Keechee Hills, which is about 50 yards from, and here there, and here appears the symbol of cross sabers. Follow trail line coming through the mountains just east of Lone Hill, where we buried Jack. His grave is east of a rock. It says, this gold shall belong to who signs below. And below, the following names are Jesse James, Frank Miller, George Overton, Rub uh, Bussey, B-U-S-S-E, Charlie Jones, Cole Younger, Will Overton, Uncle George Payne, Frank James, Roy Baxter, Bud Dalton, and Zach Smith. Very interesting. And I think Frank Miller was also, I may be wrong on this, but I was thinking he was also known as Clell Miller, was one of the men who wrote with Quantrill. Several of these men here actually wrote with Quantrill. Cole Younger did. Uh, I think Will Overton did. Uh, Uncle George Payne did. I'm not sure about Zach Smith. And I am not familiar with Rub Bussy. All right. On the bottom of the bucket were inscribed the patent dates and the manufacturer first patented on December 16th, 1851. It was reinstated on March 24, 1870. It was extended 1873 by E. Miller and Company. Not far from where Hunter found the brass bucket under the rock ledge, where Jesse had concealed it, he dug up a three-legged iron Dutch oven. Inside was the chain and fob that matched the watch he had uncovered in the Keechee Hills on the Headland Farm, 30 miles northeast. You see what I mean? I told you that watch was there for a specific purpose. And here the other part of the watch, the chain and the fob, were buried in another uh, cache 30 miles away. So Hunter is thinking that he's getting close to the jackpot to find the big one. You know, the so-called $2 million treasure. And I think that's uh, an inflated, maybe inflated figure that Wilson put on the $64,000 in gold. Maybe it was worth $2 million at the time this book was written. I'd have to sit down and check the price of gold and then figure out, you know, how much gold it would take to be worth $2 million at today's prices or at the prices at the time the book was written. Okay. Uh, he says up to this point, Hunter had been having good luck and he'd been successful in deciphering part of the outlaw code, but now his luck left him. Too many landmarks had changed. Too many clues had been destroyed. It had been more than three quarters of a century since the outlaw gold had been hidden Nature had played its role well in concealing it. 
One of Hunter's waybills showed a grave, a horse's saddle, a cave, various symbols, and five caches of buried loot with the descriptions 32,000 in gold, 136 paces north of the cave, 28,000 in gold, 76 paces west of the cave, 18,000 in gold, 72 paces north of the cave, 38,000 in gold, 42 paces west of the cave, and greenbacks and jewelry, 142 paces west and 11HBG. Don't know what that means. The long sought cave was known to Hunter as the horse and saddle cave used often by the outlaw band as a landmark. Hunter spent several weeks searching out the grave shown on the map and finally came upon the partially exposed bones of an extra large man. The crumbled ruins of a cabin and a spring were nearby close to Tarbone mountain. But Hunter was never satisfied that he had found the cave the map called for. And he probably had not. So Hunter takes in a partner named Sam Dillingham of Lawton, a man who believes believed in the treasure so strongly that he had sought it for more than 40 years. Slim accompanied Hunter, on many of his discoveries and triumphs, I shall never forget the day I met Slim as I walked into his hardware store. A buzzer made an awful racket, setting off a bell in the rear of the building. I walked to the back and found a tall, slender, near-bald man working on a motor. Is Slim Dillingham around, I asked. The old-timer looked up and frowned. What do you want with that old coot? Says I was told that he could tell me about the James treasure. About this time, he took a a spit from the water to chew in the back he had in his mouth and missed the box. Well, you're looking at that old coot. You, you say you're interested in the James treasure, huh? I nodded. Well, you know, finding buried treasure is like finding a needle in a haystack, but it can be done. Yes, sir, it can be done. Slim drawled. He picked up a dusty pipe. Okay, let's, we don't need this. Uh, all this side stuff here. Let's see. I could start this afternoon to tell you about the Jameses and their episodes in the Wichita's and talk until this time tomorrow afternoon and not repeat any one thing, but I'm sitting tight until I get that treasure. He puffed on his pipe. He said, the Jameses buried money all over those darn hills, but Frank got an awful lot of it, I know. Just what he did with it all, I don't know. But there must be an awful lot that he didn't get. Okay, now another possible scenario as I'm reading this, you know, my history detective mind is at work here. And uh, I'm thinking that a lot of these caches were hurriedly buried uh, with the idea of coming back, gathering them up, and, and putting them in a main depository, you know, the closest big depository. Uh, because, the, you know, the big depository would be sealed and it's not opened easily. And so you can't be opening this thing. You know, if they hit two or th if they did two, two or three robberies a week, you can't be opening the main entrance to these big depositories two or three times a week. It would have to be a situation where, uh, they would accumulate so much and then they would, uh, you know, open up the depository put this in it and then reseal it. 
Okay, let's see. Um, I'm looking through Slim Dillingham's story here. Okay, nothing new in any of that. He said he and Hunter never figured out what the code signs on the copper map meant. So Joe Hunter died in the 1950s. Doesn't say exactly what year. He said, uh, Dillingham has done little searching for the remainder of the much sought treasure. After Hunter's death, many of the clues, along with the famous brass bucket, disappeared, and most of the treasure mechs have scattered. Well, I know where the brass bucket went. It went into the possession of, uh, of, of Jesse Lee James. Now, what he did with it, I never knew. Okay, let's see. Another big treasure hunter was named Wells Blevins. And he lived in the mountain settlement of Medicine Park. Medicine Park is, if you look at the map of the Wichita's that I gave in the uh, first uh, supplemental photo, posting look at the map of the wichita's uh, and you'll see it's divided into two sections uh, one on the left one on the right one on the right is basically medicine park what is this talking about it says he turned up some other clues to the lucia james treasure and he started searching for it in 1926 And he managed to inherit one of the James treasure maps from an original member of the outlaw band. Doesn't say who. Blevins searches have led him into the heart of the Wichita, several miles north of the town of Cash and west to the mountains from Crater Lake. So there's several lakes in the Wichita. Crater Lake's one of them. You can find them on a map pretty easy. I did no work around Crater Lake. I focused on Treasure Lake. Hmm. The outlaw plat bears the Spanish title Madrugada Estrella Mapa Oro, meaning early morning, early morning star map to gold. That is a correct translation. Talks about the things that were on the map. Uh... Let's see.
said, uh, yeah, here's something. Years ago, a man who called himself John Vaughn, either V-O-N or V-A-U-G-H-N, claimed that he had once ridden with Jesse's gang and was there when Jesse and Frank buried a bean pot full of gold topped with a large diamond. Vaughn told Blevins that he'd seen Jesse etch the map onto half a copper kettle. Vaughn remembered that Jesse walked around the side of a hill. He had nothing to dig with but a bowie knife. Vaughn recalled, there Jesse buried the half of the copper kettle on which he had carved the map. The other half he buried under the roots of a cedar tree. This half, mind you, I found with the help of Vaughn, Blevins revealed, taking his eyes off the map, off his map, just long enough to look at me as he told the story one summer afternoon in 1963. But what we didn't find was the other half of the kettle with the map, and I don't think Frank ever found it. Okay. During their search, Vaughn guided Blevins to two graves near Crater Lake. We dug into them both, Blevins said, because I wanted to test Vaughn's story. There was a bullet hole through one man's skull right between his eyes. Uh, Vaughn said there were three graves, but we could only find two. Second grave, we found several gold bracelets which had been linked together. It was near there that we dug up half of the copper kettle embedded in the roots of a large cedar tree. Not far away, the bean pot must be buried. Vaughn knew too much to be lying, Blevin stressed, and he always proved himself right. So you see all of the, uh, can you imagine? With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The thousands and thousands of hours that people have spent looking for Frank and Jesse's gold in the Wichita's. And there has, you know, has to be some of these caches are still there. But I am convinced that probably most of the bigger ones were gathered and put into a secure large depository. And they may have used an old mine shaft for that depository. I don't know. Or they could have constructed one, but it would have been very hard to do in the Wichita's. You'd be tunneling through solid granite. And yet the miners did do that. And they certainly had a number of, of ex-Confederate soldiers in the KGC that were miners. Well, let's see. 
Oh, this, this gets a little interesting here. He said, Vaughn once told me how he'd barely escaped the wrath of Jesse, Blevins began. His duties during one particular robbery were to hold the horses, but instead Vaughn got cold feet and fled. For some odd reason, he had the nerve to meet Jesse and Frank at a later time. Jesse planned on killing Vaughn and, and revealed his intentions to Frank. But one night, Frank suggested to Vaughn that he get out of camp before Jesse woke up. Vaughn said he didn't even put his boots on for fear of waking him. Frank told Vaughn never to come back because the next morning, Jesse would kill him. And if Jesse didn't, then he would. Vaughn went to California, so he told me. When the country opened up, he returned to the Wichita's in hopes of taking up the bean pot full of gold. Somehow he seemed sure that Jesse had never recovered it. And it was then I happened to get acquainted with him. Vaughn lived in Lawton many years till his death. I don't think he and Frank ever met again. Dean Sawyer Lawton first visited Oklahoma more than 25 years ago with the goal of finding the lost treasure. And you know what? Uh, when 25 years ago, let me check and see when this book was published. I've had this book. Oh, well, I've had this book since the seventies. So good grief. That book is already over 50 years old. I think. Okay. Yeah. Copyright 1976. Okay. Let's see. So Dean Sawyer of Lawton visited Oklahoma 25 years ago. That would have been about 1950, 51, uh, of finding one to find the lost treasury. Purocly sought 180,000. He believes to be secreted in the rocks not far from Cutthroat Gap. Now, let's see. I have a picture of Cutthroat Gap. I uh, don't know if I can pull it up here. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's going to be picture number 63. Number 63, if you want to see Cutthroat Gap. Okay, uh, Salyer, a, a tree surgeon, a former cowboy, a treasure hunter, and a downright good talker. <coughs> Excuse me. Let me grab a drink. Is another who came into personal contact with an aging member of the outlaw band but far away from the Wichita mountains. One o'clock one winter afternoon, 58, I first stepped into Salyer's home. I left sometime after six, having learned plenty about Salyer the man and Salyer the adventurer. Uh, uneducated by today's standards, he had he received training, his wit would have made him one of the country's cleverest lawyers. <clears throat> okay. Okay, here we go. Here's his story. He says, I haven't found anything, but I haven't given up looking, even though I've slowed down a mite. 
One thing I know, Jesse and Frank James buried $180,000 in those hills. Make no mistake about that. You might wonder how I came to know all this. It was from an old outlaw in Brownwood, Texas. Uh, and that's where I'm from originally. Now, Brownwood, Texas, I believe, uh, came to be, after the Civil War, came to be the home of Bloody Bill Anderson, who was supposedly killed during the war, but also faked his death. Uh, he was a much wanted, you know, gorilla who had ridden with Quantrill, but broke away. And he was much, um, much bloodier and brutal than, than Quantrill ever was, uh, according to history. And my information is that he ended up in Brownwood, Texas. I think one of his relatives actually has a website and, and has all this history on it. If anybody wants to go looking for that. Bloody Bill Anderson. I've got pictures of him in my files. Um, and he does look like a brigand. Anyway, he says uh, it was from an old outlaw in Brownwood, Texas. That's where I'm from originally, who was a good friend of Jesse and Frank. Even after Frank was acquitted of his crimes, he used to come down to Brownwood just to talk over old times with this man whom I knew as Conley. This may be Cole Younger that he's talking about here. I imagine they talked over buried treasure too, though Conley never admitted as much. Uh, okay. Conley often spoke of outlaws, but it was a long time before he said just who the outlaws were. He was more of a lookout man for Jesse as I gathered it. First, I didn't think too much of his story, but you know, he talked like he must have been there. And two, he had a cowhide map, which he said was one of only three copies. Salyer and Conley often talked of making a trip to the Wichita Mountains to reclaim the treasure that Conley knew had been buried. That is, if Frank hadn't recovered it himself. And Conley had his reasons for believing that he had not. Before the old man and I could make the trip, Conley died, Salyer went on. But before he died, he gave me directions and let me look at the map. The old outlaw told Sawyer that the gold was hidden in a sealed cave, a natural stone corral known to the outlaws as Horse Thief Corral, a log cabin in Cutthroat Gap, and a Winchester rifle mounted in the fork of a tree were the signs leading to the hidden cave. It was years later that Sawyer moved from Brownwood to Oklahoma, and several more years passed before he made his first trip to Wichita's. And he hooked up with an old prospector named Bert Holderbaum, and they found the old stone corral in the shadow of Cutthroat Gap. Uh, if you wonder how it got its name, in 1833, the Osages massacred their Kiowa neighbors and placed their severed heads in brass buckets. Holderbaum was one of the few living persons who knew the location of the rock pen of the stone corral. At first, Holderbaum had trouble locating the outlaw lair, but he knew that it was on level ground at the base of Mount Pinchot, the highest peak in the Wichita's, although it does not appear to be. An old trail ran past the corral, but the animals inside were hidden from view. Holder Holderbaum remembered 
In one corner of the corral stood the rotten stumps of two trees that had once served as gateposts. Holdenbaum recalled having been shown the corral in 1901. At that time, a rock fortress said to have been used by the outlaws was still visible about two miles north. Its breastwork was constructed from boulders stacked in a large circle on top of a lone hill, which in 1901 had but one lone cedar growing on it. It had been some time before that Holderbaum found a rust-eaten rifle hanging in an oak tree just west of the makeshift fortress. So there's your second sign, the, the Winchester rifle. The cabin in Cutthroat Gap was a clue that I could never forget, Salyer said, and as he rolled, oh, anyway, a band of queen once lived the cabin. She apparently purchased the food and supplies for the outlaw bunch. Old Conley often mentioned her, always with a smile. At the summit of Mount Pinchot, a long black streak plunges 20 feet down a bluff, and he says the black streak is a sign, too. The gold is between the streak and the hanging rifle. If Conley didn't err in his directions. My partners and I searched continuously for six weeks during one spell. We looked every day except Sundays, but had no luck in finding anything more than the corral, the fortress, and the ruins of the cabin. The $180,000 was part of a payroll robbery at Dodge City, as I remember. <clears throat> That's been a very, very large payroll. And let me say for the folks that might be new that I haven't heard me say this before, if you get onto treasure stories involving army payrolls of gold, don't waste your time. The army didn't pay their soldiers in gold. Soldier didn't make very much. A U.S. soldier, traditionally, you know, and in my book, they still don't make very much. But, uh, at least they got better benefits now if they if they survive. Uh, they paid the soldiers so little that the coins were the most common coin in the soldier's pocket was a half dime, uh, and sometimes, rarely a quarter. If they had any gold on them, it was sent to them from home. You know, uh, some of the soldiers might carry a $20 gold piece, a lucky piece, as they called it, or a $5 gold piece. Uh, I know there was an awful lot of fighting at Mobile, Alabama during the Civil War, and, and many, many thousands of soldiers fought desperately. And I know that in a trench, a father and son digging out the trench and sifting got a $5 gold piece. And that was the only gold coin I ever heard of being found on the entire battlefield. So, like I said, don't uh, don't get treasure hunters fever over army payrolls of gold. Uh, if any gold was paid, it would have been a very small amount, maybe to an officers, higher-ranking officers. Yeah, but certainly not to the enlisted men. Okay, let's see. So, you know, it's pretty well accepted that Frank uncovered some loot, as they call it in the book here, uh, uncovered some gold. 
But again, I think that was prearranged. It was staged uh, as part of his cover. And uh, certainly the brass buckets, you know, and, and the copper map and everything and all the codes, all of that's been found. Somebody went to a great deal of trouble to, to make those and bury those. And they did that because they're associated with, with tied to great amounts of, of, of gold or you know, probably gold. Uh, you know, there could be silver too. The, 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 uh, certainly the KGC did not exclusively hide gold. Um, they did, uh, hide a lot of gold bars in their eight super caches, the eight that I, Jesse Lee told me, and I'm, I'm thinking there might be a ninth, right? One right here in the Wichita's that he didn't tell me about. Uh, maybe he didn't tell me about it because it was the biggest one. I don't know, but, uh, they were not averse to silver. There, uh, there are caches that I talked about with Jesse that were silver dollars barrels of silver dollars so that they'd hidden away and they also hid treasures of jewels okay well I think that pretty well uh, covers what we can get out of Steve Wilson's uh, research. And I want to go, let's see, want to go through some of the other, these are fairly short treasure stories. Uh, how are we doing on time? We still got a little time. Okay. All right. Mike, any, uh, Anybody got any questions or anything? Do we need to pause for a moment? <clears throat> Nobody there? Hello? Yep, yeah, I'm here. I'm sorry. I accidentally put you on mute. Um, okay. <clears throat> I'll be honest with you. I've been sitting here just listening, and I haven't been checking chat. I actually <laughs> laid down. My back is killing me. And... Uh, so I've just been listening in and haven't been looking at chat, but I, I can see it. I don't see anything recent. Let me scroll through, <coughs> scroll through. Um, I mean, nothing I see, but very interesting show. Oh, I'm all stopped up. I hope I'm not getting sick. I've had a tickle in my throat today. Uh-oh. Uh, yeah, I know, right? We're going to have to quarantine you for two years. Right. <laughs> uh, if, if anybody has any questions, uh, if I missed it, like I said, I just haven't been watching. My back has been really bothering me. 
Um, so I just, I thought, well, heck, I'm going to, I do the podcast in my room. I've got a table, I got a desk set up and stuff and I do it at my desk and my back was getting really stiff and sore sitting around and I started standing up, but at least the last half an hour, I thought, I'm going to go lay in bed. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, there you go. Yeah. Okay. But I'm not seeing anything. If anybody has anything, uh, okay, well, we'll move go. We'll move right along. We're going to get into a, a chapter in the book. It's entitled Skeletons, Jewels, and Platinum. All right. Good deal. Let's, let's see what we got here. Okay. He's interviewing a guy named old Jim Wilkerson. And uh, he tells him, he says, I Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. I guess it won't hurt to tell you the whole truth about this. He says, I found Wilkerson in his cobblestone cabin snuggled against the hillside in Medicine Park, a mountain settlement nestled in the Wichita's. I knew that Wilkerson once served as a deputy sheriff and because that fact was somewhat reluctant to tell me all he knew about Dick Estes. He made clear that he had known Estes a long time before he became a deputy and then went on to fill in the missing parts of his story of the little known outlaw Estes and his forgotten gold. In 1902, Dick Estes pulled a robbery in Denver making a sizable haul of $40,000 in jewels and watches and $20,000 in gold coins. Wow. In 1902, that is a fortune. Estes lost no time seeking refuge in Oklahoma Territory, where he had previously eluded the law. He was a tough bird, and he knew this country well, Jim said. Estes had a mountain hideout up Panther Creek towards the north side of the Wichita's. The dugout evidently was a lair for many of his kind. Estes once boasted that on the roster of visitors was the notorious Oklahoma bad man, Bill Doolin. You know, Bill Doolin was shot and killed in, uh, I think in the, uh, that bank raid where most of the Daltons lost their lives. There's pictures of Bill Doolin uh, post-mortem, as they say. While holed up at his mountain lair, Estes cashed his haul of jewels, watches, and gold, keeping out only enough so as not to appear conspicuous. For his treasure, 
He chose a bank of dirt at the base of a cedar tree, 10 paces west from the dugout. Then he rode into Lawton and sought out Jim Wilkerson, whose family he had known for years. As a kid, I used to cook for a lot of those characters, old Jim smiled. Estes had a knack for losing what he had. It was not long before he discovered that his trail was too warm to remain any longer in Lawton. Finding himself in dire need of a fresh horse, he offered Wilkerson a trade no reasonable man would pass up. In exchange for a horse and saddle, he gave Jim the directions to the $60,000 cash and invited him to help himself to a fair share. Estes was convinced that he would be back to retrieve the, the remainder in due time. Well, that's pretty, some pretty strong verification there. Jim was sure that that time never came for Estes. He was soon apprehended, lodged in the Lawton jail, only to escape soon after, and remained at large for about two years in New Mexico. There he was recaptured, returned to Lawton, and jailed again. Soon afterward, Jim lost touch with him. Some time passed before Wilkerson made an attempt to find the outlaw hideaway and the treasure at the base of the cedar tree. By then, prospectors were all over the mountains and digging at any place other than other than a mine, and digging at any place other than a mine might arouse suspicion. So when he finally found the old haunt, the key to finding the earthen bank had disappeared. Many of the cedars in the area had been cut for fuel, no doubt by miners. Jim found what he believed was the stump of such a tree but his shovel yielded nothing around its base. Jim Wilkerson never got to tap Dick, Dick Estes' cache, which is still hidden somewhere up Panther Creek in the heart of the rugged, boulder-strewn Wichita's. He had been confined to a wheelchair for years when I last talked with him, but old Jim never flagged in his belief that the $60,000 still remains just where Estes buried it, near the old outlaw dugout. The Wichita Mountains have long been considered a paradise for outlaws gold by those in a position to know. Many of those tales have been overshadowed by the stories of Frank and Jesse James and their $2 million hidden in the hills. But one only has to examine turn-of-the-century newspaper accounts to get an inkling of the outlaw lairs discovered when the Kiowa Comanche, Comanche Apache country was opened to white settlement. The Indian Reservation, virtually all of southwest Oklahoma, had become forbidden land to white intruders at the Treaty of Medicine Lodge in 1867. The government feared a repetition of the Black Hills Gold Rush and massacres. Fort Sill soldiers and Indian police alike patrolled the reservation, frequently arresting interlopers, but prospectors still came with pick and shovel, as did men wanted by the law, seeking refuge in caves and twisting canyons where few white men were seen. Their telltale bones often revealed a grim story, often revealed a grim story, period. In November 1895, a party from El Reno discovered a charred skeleton of a prospector in a deep canyon between Mount Scott and Mount Sheridan, who had evidently been killed by the Comanche Indians. Near the remains were found mining tools, a crucible, and a claim marker that showed it had been staked the February before. It was not the first nor last such discovery. 
Okay, this is another story. It's called Lost Wagon Train Gold. In 1847 or 1848, a long wagon train composed of 45 families slowly rumbled out of Clarksville in North Texas, headed west up the Red River for California. Made up of immigrants and merchants who had lived near the settlement, the train was led by two men, remembered only as Ryan and Alexander, who were driving along a large herd of cattle. At first, a wagon train tried to follow the Prairie Dog Fork of Red River, but on up, up, hello, but upon finding it far too rugged for travel, turned back and steered north up North Fork. At that time, the eastern border of West Texas. But the train had gone no farther than fifty to seventy miles upriver when hostile Indians attacked. Many of the immigrants were killed and their stock driven off. A few who escaped wandered on the plains for almost a year before making it back to Clarksville. Years later, in 1859, James Pollard, who told the story long afterward, joined a party from Fanning County to search for the remains of the ill-fated train. Pollard knew some of the party had returned, for he had seen them, but the only remains they found was the skeleton of a man named Gilbert who had died at the base of a tree on what later became known as Gilbert Creek in present Clay County, Texas. His bones were returned to Bonham, Texas for burial where Gilbert had lived and built the first mill in that settlement. In 1899, a woman about 60 years old appeared at the home of J.M. Goff, two miles south of Carter, Oklahoma, she told Goff that when she was about 10 years old, she was with an immigrant train traveling up the North Fork. She remembered that the wagons were attacked near the river at the mouth of a canyon. She was taken captive by the Indians and lived with them until she escaped several years later. Sometime after the return of the century, a farmer named Lee Castillo discovered the grisly remains of what may have been that wagon train on his river farm about four miles south and four miles west of Carter. He found more than a dozen bleached skulls and bones scattered over the prairie. Bones of the Texas immigrants, question mark. Local tradition has long had it that near a rock crossing on Elm Creek, a wagon train of immigrants hid their gold and valuables just before an attack by Indians. The treasure has never been reported found. Okay, this one is called, I'm looking at the time. I'm going to, uh, let's see here. Yeah, I've got too many. I promised you relic hunters uh, a story, an Oklahoma story here about relic hunting. So I want to get into that pretty quick. Uh, Dorian, do, and, yeah. and, and don't worry, we can. I know we said this was wrapping it up, but if we need to make a fourth one, because we're at two hours right now, um, we can always make it a fourth one, a fifth one. I, I, people love this series, so they okay. will come, they will wait and come back and listen to more. So we don't want to rush through anything, you know. I, I wouldn't rush through anything, um, you know, but uh, okay. Please continue as you see fit. Okay, let's get a little, let's take a little poll from our listeners. Uh, they can either make, you know, comments on, uh, 
on the Jesse James uh, announcement posting or uh, on the chat room. But, you know, from here, uh, I've got a lot more treasure stories. If this is what you'd like to hear, they're not going to be about Jesse James. But we can move in. We can do a show on, on these Oklahoma treasure stories. Let me give you some titles that we can get into. Dead Men Tell No Tales, A Dying Man's Story, The Keechee Hills Mystery, The Skeleton and His Gold. Uh, I'm not sure how to pronounce this. K-E-O-W-N-S. Cuans. Uh, Cuans uh, Lost Ledge of Platinum. Hmm. Cave, cave of Jewels. Cave of Lost Saddles. Mystery of Jester's Cave and treasure of cutthroat gap. So those are some of those that, you know, that we have left here. We could get into if everybody would like to continue. So like I said, if we can get a little bit of a poll from our audience, uh, and if it's, you know, if it's, if it's positive and you'd like to hear these stories, then we'll do that. Uh, you know, frankly, I think that's one thing that's missing in the, uh, world of treasure hunting today, Mike, that was really really prevalent back in the seventies and eighties was treasure stories like, like these. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, they, I don't know how they lost their appeal because man, you know, uh, I'll tell you one of the hottest items back then was copies of old treasure magazines. Mm. You know, I mean, people were, uh, always trying to obtain, these, you know, and, and, and people had huge files of these magazines that were full of these treasure stories. So they're, you know, they have an appeal and, uh, you listen to the clues and, you know, you think, and you think, okay, you know, could I, could I work this project? You know, is it worth working? Could I, could I take it a step farther than anybody else did? Uh, let me ask you this, Dorian, uh, like how many, do you have a lot of these treasure stories you want to share or, I mean, do we want to make it an ongoing series or something where you, you, you do some, I mean, are you wanting to do that? Cause we can do that. Or do you want to do a single show and share what, what you're willing to share or, I mean, cause they'll eat it up. I think, I know I will. I, I love that idea, but that's up to you. Um, yeah. And well, there, want... there, there, there are literally, I have files with hundreds, hundreds of, uh, of, uh, you know, authenticated treasure stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, we could do, <laughs> we could probably, we could probably do every show for the next year on the, on just that subject alone, Mike. So, uh, you know, like I said, if people want to hear this, we certainly could, uh, uh, work these kind of shows in from time to time. You know, I, it, it I would, would love to do that. I think that's really cool. And, you know, talking to you and, oh, excuse me, Dennis, and um, you guys talking about some of these caches and stuff, that I'm really, it's really been on my mind a lot lately. You, you know, Dennis has really kind of uh, really got me excited about that. Um. Yeah, Bill, I'm sorry. I got to interrupt everything. Bill in Ohio found a Cobb coin. Oh, a Cobb. Wow. Yeah, he did. Way yes, to go, Bill. Mm-hmm. I found my first Cobb in the 10,000 10, Islands off the coast of Florida on the beach. Oh, wow. 
where, Gas- a- where Gasparilla and his pirates used to live. Oh, wow. How mm. cool is that? Yeah, all, all I had to do, Mike, was go out into the Gulf of Mexico for the very first time in my life in a 14-foot open boat with a 40-horsepower Merck engine, outboard engine. Mm. I was with a Garrett dealer, and we are out in the middle of the Gulf with no land in sight <laughs> in, in, in any direction. <laughs> and I thought the guy had been hired by whites to take me out there and kill me. Right, right. That sounds about right. You know, he just kept he just kept heading straight out farther and farther from land, and I'm thinking this guy's a nutcase, and I am in big big trouble. And finally, after two hours, oh my I, goodness! And, and I kid you not, Mike, we're out there in the Gulf of Mexico, and at no time was the whole bottom of our boat touching water. We were actually traveling on wave crests, one after another. Wow. Uh, and, wow, that's so And all scary. of a sudden I see I see these little tiny green dots way way out there on the horizon and they got bigger and bigger and bigger and there really are 10,000 islands out there. <laughs> mm, wow. You know, so I How I neat came, is that? Yeah, came back with my first uh, you know, Spanish cob coin. Mm. Uh that's all we found was the one, but uh you know, it was quite an adventure and and I live to tell about it. Right. Uh, Mike, let me let me do this. I did promise the the guys, the relic hunters, a, a quick story here, and then we'll wrap it up. Okay. Uh, this is a Wichita's uh, military artifact story, guys. You're going to like this. Okay. And uh, you might want to. Let's see. Now this will work. This will work. Here we go. Otter Creek has an important place in the lore of the Wichita's, a tributary of the North Fork of the Red River that once harbored the animals for which it is named. Is the Red River named for animals? I don't get that one. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, it doesn't make sense, does it? No, it doesn't. (laughs) It branches, hopefully the rest of it does. It branches several (laughs) miles west of what is today Snyder. Okay, Snyder, Oklahoma. One stream heading north through Granite Peaks, the other northeast to Cutthroat Gap. Remember we talked about Cutthroat Gap? It's in picture 63 for those of you that that have the pictures up in front of you. Okay, on the north side of the mountains. It served as the base of operations for the first punitive expedition sent into the region by the United States government. In September 1858, four companies of the celebrated 2nd Cavalry and one company of the 5th Infantry, commanded by Brevet Major Earl Van Dorn and a force of 135 Wichita's. And by the way, you guys, I don't know, my Civil War guys, I don't know if you know your history. Where did Earl Van Dorn die during the Civil War? We'll see. We'll find out from you later on that. See if somebody can answer that. Anybody can answer that before we quit the show. I'll give you a copy of my book on, on the Battle of Perryville. Whoa. You guys better jump on that. He writes some good books. All right. So they've got a force of 135 Wichita Indians with them. Uh, Wichita's Caddo's and, and Tonkawa's. And the 
Tonkawas uh, were, were uh, the cavalry called them the Tonks. Real quick, Bill said Devil's Den? Nope. Nope. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Wrong state. <laughs> Think of a southern state. All right, here we go. Uh, okay, and they were led by Lawrence Saul Ross. And they were sent north of the Red River from Fort Belknap, Texas, to war on the Comanches who were raiding the Texas settlements. Three camps were established on Otter Creek. Each was named Camp Radziminski in honor of a former officer of the regiment, Lieutenant Charles Radziminski. From their first camp on the east bank of Otter Creek, Near present Tipton, Oklahoma, Van Dorn led his troops on a 36-hour ride to engage Chief Buffalo Hump's Comanches in camp near the Wichita Village, not far from present Rush Springs. Van Dorn's cavalry and Indian allies killed 70 of Big Hump's warriors and scattered the remainder. So they had quite a battle there. Two months later, Van Dorn moved his troops upstream several miles where they wintered and in March 1859, he chose a third camp farther upstream on the west bank of Otter Creek. Uh, you, you, you started something here, Dorian. <laughs> oh? Steve said Tennessee. Bill said Vicksburg. Uh, Steve said, didn't a, a doctor shoot him for, for fooling with his wife? <laughs> you know, if he did, then I'm thinking of the wrong officer, and, it, and it's my bad. Uh, we will, let's see, Mike, do you have a record of those responses? No, oh, I could, if I can find a pen, I can start writing them down. Okay. I don't have a pen anywhere close to me though. I'll tell you what, I may be, I may be messed up, but whoever gets it correct, you know, I, I will give them the book. Um, okay. but I was think I was thinking he was killed during the, uh, battle, uh, a battle in Arkansas. There you, there's a, there's a clue guys. You better hurry up. A big battle in Arkansas. Hmm. Hmm. Let's see if they can, if they can find it. All right. Um, okay. D D D D. All right, so he he makes a third camp farther upstream on the west bank of Otter Creek. The camp was protected in the north and west by Granite Peaks, about two miles north and two miles west of present-day Mountain Park in southwestern Kiowa County. Boy, that's pretty much X marks the spot there, guys. Mule and wagon trains from Fort Belknap kept the soldiers supplied. A well was dug, but facilities were few. The officers lived in small picket mud-chinked huts with stone chimneys, and the enlisted men camped in the new conical Sibley tents. In late April, Van Dorn led his troops 400 miles northward to southern Kansas and again defeated the Comanches near present-day Dodge City. The cavalrymen returned to Camp Radzeminski at the end of May. Five soldiers who died at the camp were buried a half a mile away. The bodies were moved to the National Cemetery at Fort Gibson in 1933. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, and I have hunted Fort Gibson at night. <clears throat> <coughs> Sorry, no more details on that one. <clears throat> um, 
Okay. So tradition has long held that outlaws cashed $40,000 in the granite rocks somewhere about old Camp Radzeminski, where only scattered foundation ruins now remain. In 1859, after 10 months of occupation, Camp Radzeminski was abandoned when the 2nd Cavalry was recalled to duty in Texas. Shortly afterward, a regiment of Texas Rangers occupied the post while patrolling the region against the Kiowas and the Comanches. Camp Radzeminski also has its tale of buried treasure. This tale is drawn hunters armed with evidence that a government payroll of $40,000 was shipped by wagon to the camp to pay the soldiers for several months back salary. Some distance from the camp, a band of raiders seized the gold. You see, right there is the problem. Uh, I'll guarantee you they, they were not sending 40000 in gold to pay these soldiers. Absolutely not. Van Dorn's marksmen lost little time in overtaking the robbers and shot them all. But when their bodies were examined, no gold was found. Let's say no payroll was found. Local tradition says that somewhere about the environs of Otter Creek, near the old military camp, the payroll is still hidden. As late as 1927, the blackened chimney of the cook oven was still visible, but today only a few scattered foundation remains of the camp. Oh, I would love to hut that camp. Oh, I would mm -hmm. love it. Many glass-blown uh, wine bottles have been found at the site, along with hammer-made chisels, brass ornaments, army buttons, poker chips, square-headed nails, an 1854 Canadian dime, and an 1852 United States gold dollar. That's the kind of gold you find at these camps. You don't find anything bigger than a dollar. A dollar is a little tiny coin. If you don't know how big a, uh, you know how big a half dime is. Well, a gold dollar is about half that size. Yeah, they're tiny, aren't they? Yeah, they are. Uh, and my <clears throat> uh, gold dollars are known to have been found at the Confederate camps in Texas. So you are sitting in an area where you might actually find a gold dollar. I hope so someday. Steve said a guy named Peters killed him for fooling with his wife. Must be another officer in Arkansas. Bill said P. Ridge. I was yeah. asking if it's P. Ridge. I'm thinking it is P. Ridge, yeah. But uh, we'll we'll check. And uh, <clears throat> if, uh, um, <clears throat> excuse me. We need the location. If 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 he was shot by uh, uh, somebody for filming with his wife, I'd like to have the location of where it happened, so we can, you know, put out that information. And uh, I may be wrong, but I'm pretty sure Van Dorn was definitely in charge of the Confederate Army at Pea Ridge, and I was thinking that he was killed in the battle. And if I'm wrong on that, I apologize. And like I said. Uh, we will get the gentleman with the correct answer to the book. What's his name? Earl Van Dorn. Let me look. Okay, if he... Uh, you could Google it and probably find out really quick. Yeah, that's what I'm looking for. I'm trying. 
Let's see. Oh, he was shot dead at his headquarters at Spring Hill by a doctor who claimed that Van Dorn had carried on an affair with his wife. All right. Well, okay. That's good enough. Uh, what was the, I, I didn't get the name of the fellow that, that gave us that. Oh, who told us that? Yeah. That was Steve Adams. Okay. Steve, if, uh, if you will please PM me with your mailing address, we will ship out your book. Now, let me say this. Uh, the shipping times of the post office are getting really, really bad right now because of this COVID thing. So, you know, I'll send it priority mail, but it may not get to you for two or three weeks from what I'm hearing right now. Just, just so you know. That's awesome. That's really cool. Steve, that's a neat book. You'll love it. Very good book. Yeah, it's called Perryville, the Battle that Turned the Bluegrass Red. Uh, Perryville was the biggest Civil War battle in Kentucky, and it was also one of the 20 biggest in the whole Civil War out of 22,000 conflicts. Mm. Wow. That's incredible. Yep, we're going to give Dennis a tour of that battlefield when he gets here. (laughs) Oh, that's neat. I can't wait to hear how that goes. Yeah. Yeah, we'll, uh, uh, well, if you see, uh, I'll be sure, uh, if he gets arrested for detecting in the park, I'll be sure that, uh, (laughs) we get a picture of him behind bars. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah. That's what you need to do. No, I got permission here. Go ahead, Dennis. I got, I'll catch up with you, buddy. I'll catch up with you. You go ahead and get started. The new, the new park superintendent at Perryville is actually a relic hunter, metal detects. Oh, that isn't that funny. Yeah. So I don't know if he would cut us any slack or not. (laughs) Probably not. That's probably his hunting ground. Uh, Yeah, there you go. (laughs) Probably throw the book at you. And I don't mean to cast any dispersion. He seems like a really fine fella. And, uh, you know, I met him and talked to him here recently. And uh, I think we get a, a, a private site around Perryville. I'm going to invite him to go hunt with us. Oh, and, nice. Nice. Maybe he'll invite you to the battlefield sometime. There you go. <laughs> Dennis is in the chat and he says, LOL, well, midnight. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, you go. Dennis, you and Dorian are too old. I None of us have enough money to come bail you two out of jail for hunting the, the federal parks at night. So nah. just no, no. Yeah. We aren't doing the podcast live from the penitentiary. <laughs> you keep Dorian out of out of prison. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've managed to stay out for seventy two years. I'd like to, you know, keep I'd like to retire way. a winner. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm with you. I understand that. Are we wrapping it up then? Uh, yes, sir. Okay, good. Good. That was another great show and. We'll talk more about it, Dorian, but I, I mean, if you're up for it and you want to do it, I, I think that those shows would go over really big. Um, I know I'd love to hear them. You know, if we do do one now and then, we don't have to, I don't want to yeah. do them every week or anything, but uh, every now and then. And, and like I said, everybody next week, it, it might just be me. Uh, Dennis and Dorian might be headed off to prison for hunting uh, federal <laughs> parks. Um so that's if not Dorian's fed. not on next week, he's probably headed to prison. That, um, that's not federal, Mike. That's state. <laughs> oh, is it state? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, that's good. Perryville's the uh, only 
Battlefield Park last year. That uh, only battle, only state Battlefield Park out of about three hundred state Battlefield Parks that made the top ten Battlefield list. Wow. Bill said a uh, new new Facebook page detecting from cell block C. Yeah, this isn't. I don't want this to be all metal mode from cell block C show. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I trust you two old timers together. I'm telling you, that's a you know that's all we need is another reality show, right? <laughs> yeah, uh, <right>. yeah. <laughs> that's too much reality. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah. I'm, I, you know, I don't run fast enough to <laughs> anymore to, uh, to do that. I can, but, uh, I could see you two getting thrown in an old prison and you, you two sending me, uh, coded messages to throw a metal detector over the wall to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or, uh, yeah. Or, you know, bake us a cake with a hacksaw in it. Right. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, you know, um, uh, you know, one of the things, speaking of prison stuff, one of the things that, uh, uh, I really love when I was researching uh, for my book on John Hunt Morgan, the famous Confederate raider. Mm-hmm. You know, he he was captured and sent to the Ohio Penitentiary in Columbus, Mike. Yeah, yeah. And you know, he was only there three months, and you know, he and he and uh, uh, several of his top officers uh, dug their way out and escaped. Mm-hmm. Uh, amazing, uh, uh, amazing story. You know, it's one of my favorite. He favorite was stories. later. Was he hung? Pardon? Uh, John Hunt Morgan. Didn't he end up getting hung? No, he didn't. He was a little town, uh, green something, Tennessee. For some reason, the last syllable escapes me. Uh, uh, He was staying in a a lady's house. Uh, She was the wife of a doctor. I believe the doctor wasn't there. And their teenage daughter snuck out of the house, got on a horse, rode to the next town about 12 miles away where there was a Yankee garrison and told that John Hunt Morgan and his boys were in this town. And so about, I think about 6 a.m. the next morning, they surrounded the house. Uh, and and uh, Morgan and his officers that were in the house tried to shoot their way out uh, without, their, without their pants on. They, they, <laughs> they, had to, they had to flee with their pistols out the back door and uh, Morgan was running through the garden when he was shot and killed by a, a Yankee cavalryman. Oh wow, wow, that's that's crazy. The I story. He... Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, go ahead. The story is that the uh, trooper that shot him had had a brother who had been killed by Morgan's men, and. Uh, Morgan had made the comment that there he lies like a dog. And so the story is that this trooper who shot him, uh, as revenge for his brother being killed, actually, uh, instead of trying to take him prisoner, which he probably could have, uh, and then throw him over his saddle, rode into, uh, his camp and, uh, shoved his body off of the horse, you know, to the ground and said to his commanding officer, there he lies like a dog. Hmm. Well, anyway, the, uh, of course, Morgan being a Mason and, and the Yankee officers being a Mason, they, you know, they, uh, 
cleaned him up, got him in a uniform, you know, and sent his body back to Abingdon, Virginia, through the lines to be buried. Masons mm. uh, often did that for one another, even when they were on opposite sides. Anyway, oh, wow. I digress. What a, what a okay. neat story. All right, guys, yeah. we're going to call it a night here, and we're going to get off here next week. Not sure if Dorian will be around. Most likely, we're going to be talking about the new Apex and what's what comes out Friday, if enough comes out. If not, we'll figure out what we're going to talk about. But, uh, Dorian, if we don't hear from you next Tuesday, um, have fun. And, uh, Thank you, sir. Have, treat my dentist good. He's been real good to me. Don't Don't get him in jail or in any trouble or anything. I appreciate it. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> uh Steve said he sent you a message through all metal mode. Okay. So I'm not sure what you mean, Steve, through all metal mode. But if there's something there I'll find it. Um But yeah, we'll get it figured out. Alright, good night everybody and thanks for tuning in. Hope you loved it. Alrighty, good night. Good night. <clears throat>